We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Reading, reading our favorite books. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Reread. The podcast where we talk about books that we read as kids, meaning 18 and under, and uh, see how they hold up in the cold, harsh light of adulthood. And on this episode, we are talking about the second part of His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, The Subtle Knife. And I think I need to start out by admitting that I was wrong about something in the last episode. And you were right. Oh. I gotta pinch myself because I must be dreaming. I just feel like I need to get that that out early. You were arguing that Mrs. Coulter's, like, charm was magical in nature. And I was like, I think she's just, like, a hot, charismatic lady. (laughs) And uh, this book made it pretty clear it is magical in nature. So you were right. Congratulations. Well, you know what? I think I'm going to disagree with you there because I don't think it's necessarily (laughs) magical. I mean, we're getting way ahead of ourselves already, but (laughs) I think it's just her sheer force of will. Let's save this conversation for later, because (laughs) this is not going to make any sense to people who don't remember this book or never read this book. We don't talk about it. I guess thank you for admitting that you're wrong. (laughs) I think you're wrong about being wrong. Anyway. anyway. Uh, Well... I have to start off with with an apology. I have to apologize to Philip Pullman. In the last episode, I said that The Golden Compass was the most boringest book of this trilogy. I also have to apologize to Amy Tan. I said her book was the most disappointing book that I've read for this podcast. Aww. And I also... We'll apologize to C.S. Lewis, not for any particular reason. I just feel like I need to throw it in there. <laughs> this book, man, it actively made me angry. I'm going to get very polemical in this episode, mm. but only because Philip Pullman is kind of a <laughs> in public. This book is one of the most vapid, superficial, surface level, cowardly bits of writing that I've read. And uh, I'll save all my explanations for later, but God, what a free fall from what I thought about this book as a youth, because if this was my favorite book of the trilogy back when I first read it, and man, oh man, how the mighty have fallen, which I suppose is appropriate given that this whole series is an adaptation of Paradise Lost that he... uh in some senses, is literalizing the fall. The fall in quality, perhaps, but it is a fall nonetheless. Anyway. <laughs> ah, what, did, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because I definitely, going into this, remembered that you said this was your favorite book. And I remembered, when I read this as a kid, I didn't remember liking this book. I remember, in fact, strongly disliking certain elements. And to be fair, I'd only read this once. I read this and the Amber Spyglass third book once Mm. and then never reread them. And then I reread The Golden Compass like God knows how many times. So Mm -hmm. my memories of this were quite weak. Like I remembered Will's existence um, (laughs) and I remembered the subtle knife. 
I remembered like what it was and what it did. And I remembered, I think my most vivid memory from this book is Will's battle in the tower to get the subtle knife. I remembered that like vividly. I remembered pretty much none of the rest of this book. Uh, I kept being like, oh, yeah, this was a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even some stuff like I knew I remembered about um, uh, Mary Malone, not because I actually remembered, but because like I'd seen a gif of the TV show like a month or so ago. And I was like, oh, right. She exists in this book. So like, I think the only thing I genuinely remembered from reading was the subtle knife and that fight up in the tower. I, I don't think I actually remembered anything else in this book. But I really thought I was going to have, like, you know, I read it at, like, 12 or something. So I was like, this series does veer more adult than uh, middle grade, you know, like, on the YA spectrum. Yeah. And I was kind of expecting to feel very differently going back in. <laughs> During my reread, I was like, oh, wait, I remember the problem is, is that this book has some of my least favorite tropes in the history of tropes. And I was like, ah, I would just naturally dislike this book regardless because I just don't, like, it's very rare that those kind of trips or sort of story events can be done well, in my opinion. But there were some other things I noticed that I was like, oh, I wonder if, like, subconsciously I was irritated about these things as a youth. Yeah. And I was kind of going into this episode expecting to have to kind of uh, fight you a little bit on it. Because I was like, oh, no, Casey said it was his favorite book. Like, he said he read it more times, so he probably remembered it better than me. Like, we might be at odds. So, honestly, I think that you probably, I came in expecting to have to temper some of the, like, my dislike for things and, like, you know, be more polite about it. And now I feel like you're going to be more extreme than I am. So, I'm kind of thrown for a loop. Indeed. (laughs) It's funny that you say that this book veers more adult on the spectrum of YA novels, because maybe content wise Mm. it does in some ways, but in terms of writing, in terms of the sophistication of the themes, this book is like the most teenager of teenager books. The logic, if you recall in the last episode, I was, I called out this idea that because both Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter hate dust. That means dust must be good. This book, The Subtle Knife, makes similar leaps of logic throughout the book. And the ending in particular is the most egregious example of that, of this kind of very simplistic, fallacious, honestly stupid kind of thinking that is no better than the people that... Pullman is trying to criticize here and it's just aggravating. I don't know. It reminds there there's another line you said where when you come back to these books and you remember them being like the characters being a lot more complex and a, and a lot more time mm. being spent with the characters. And I do think that's a quality of childhood that everything feels bigger. And then when you come back to it later in adulthood, you're like, whoa, that's weird. I don't know, this statue that I remember from childhood being a billion feet tall. I'm actually taller than it now and things like that. So I, this is a book clearly that when I came to it as a teen, I thought it was an ocean. And now that I've come back, I, I see that it's just it's a puddle, a measly puddle. 
I, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really want to get into all this. I'll start by saying that you talked about remembering the philosophy being more, you know, whatever. I'm like, I don't think there was a lot of philosophy in this book, quite frankly. Like, we didn't get those discussions that we got in the first book. Yeah. We we didn't get that, like, conversation in the end with Lord Azrael, you know, that we got right. in the first book that I loved so much. And these other moments, it, it's very much more of a, like, action book? Stupid. Question mark? <laughs> and I... I think that we'll come back to the philosophy more in the Amber Spyglass from the very little I remember from that. But you know what? Let, let's get into the summary so we can get that out of the way and we can yeah. just talk about this book. And I will say this, I realized as I was reading, I was like, oh, this is the first book we've had really with like people in various places with different storylines. Yeah. I was like, oh, I haven't had to do one of those summaries before <laughs> where I'm leaping between people. So it might it might not go as smoothly as I figure out how to do that because um I don't write these. I just do them on the spot. <laughs> I guess you could do give it the the two towers book treatment because there's like two But they meet back together at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I did okay. think about that, but I was like they meet back together at the end, so you have to kind of do them simultaneously. All but right. anyhow, we start off in Oxford with a character named Will Perry we have never met before. And it becomes evident pretty quickly that this is not Lyra's Oxford. This is our Oxford. And he's there with his mom, and he's asking this woman that he used to know to please look after his mom for a few days while he does things. And he's like 12, so we're like, what is going on here? <laughs> but it, we find out pretty quickly that uh, Will's mom is not like mentally sound. She has sort of paranoid delusions, but some of those delusions are actually real because it turns out, like, her whole life, she's talked to Will, or Will's whole life, she's talked to him about, like, you know, there are people out to get us, we have to hide from them, blah, blah, blah. And while some of that is not true, there are now actually men looking for them. <laughs> and these men have been harassing them and breaking into their house and trying to find these letters from Will's missing father so will stashes his mom away so she'll be safe goes back to the house to retrieve the letters and ends up running into two of the men there and in his uh, attempt to get out of the house with the letters he accidentally kills one of them or it's i'm not even sure like the man dies while trying to attack will the amount yeah. will is really at fault is indeed questionable there's also a cat involved that trips the man yes. so really at best, Will Cats is an accomplice. <laughs> yes. Like, Will's, essentially what happens is Will bull rushes this man at the top of the stairs, and the man staggers backwards. The cat then gets behind the man, trips him. The man falls down the stairs, breaks his neck, and dies. So, like, Will did cause him to be in motion, but can he really be blamed? Mm, but whatever. He's like, now I'm a murderer. And apparently the forces of the universe also agree with that, so... Murderer. Because later when... I'm super forward, but, but when Lyra looks uh, asks about him on the alethiometer, alethiometer's like, he's a murderer. <laughs> so, guess he is. Anywho, on the run from these men and from now the murder he's committed, uh, Will goes into this park and finds, through the help of another cat, this box essentially, into another world. It's like a, a, a square 
of air that looks into another world. And he's like, well, I'm going to go through that. So he goes on through. He finds this city that is like deserted, but there's there's stuff in it. So he just kind of meanders around for a while. And then eventually he runs into Lyra, who is also there, has come through the opening that her father created uh, between her world and this one into this world. And uh, she's just kind of been stumbling around aimlessly. But now the two of them are together and they get sort of, well, they don't really get to know each other at this point. But essentially through talking, it's determined that Will will help Lyra find some scholars because she's like, I want to ask them about dust. So they're going to go back into his world so that Lyra can find scholars in Oxford. On the other side of things, we are following <laughs> Lee Scoresby, the aeronaut, and the witch Seferina Pekala. They all have been reunited after the storm kind of separated everyone. I guess there was another storm caused by, like, Asriel opening the portal, essentially. And it's really f***ed <laughs> up the weather, kind of understandably. And, uh... Seferita was doing some scouting afterwards, and she found Mrs. Coulter, who was torturing a witch, to try and find out information about the prophecy about Lyra. And Seferita is able to murder the captured witch before she can reveal this information and escape, and then return to the rest of the witches where Lee Scoresby is, and all of them come up with a plan where, like, 20 or so witches are going to go through Well, it's 20. It becomes 21. Oh, good. I was like, gonna go through the portal to try and find Lyra and guard her because she's the child of prophecy. Lee Scoresby is like, I, for some reason, remember this detail Lyra said about this man, Grumman, Stanislaus Grumman, <laughs> who Lyra said that Lord Asriel showed his like shrunken head and therefore he's dead, but I don't think he's dead. And I feel like he might know something about all of this. So I'm going to go hunt him down because I want to help Lyra in whatever way I can. And for some reason, this seems like the way to me. So they're like, cool, you do that. I should also mention there's another witch queen other than Sephirita called Ruti Skada, I think. And she is a former lover of Lord Asriel's and she's decided to go with Sephirita to try and find him. They are also joined by this witch who's like, hey, Seferina, I didn't want to tell you this, but my friend kind of forced me to. Grumman turned me down. Like, I was in love with him, and he wouldn't get with me, and now I want to murder him. Hey, no, stop. Just calm down. Don't do it. And so Seferina's like, all right, you should come with us so you aren't anywhere near him to murder him. This won't be significant at all. So the two of them <laughs> set off on their separate quests, and we return to... Will and Lyra. Uh, Will is looking into information on his father to try and figure out what's going on and why these men are hunting for him. And Lyra is trying to learn about dust and they go back through to Oxford to do this. Lyra at some point ends up in a museum where some creepy old man sees her and talks to her and is generally very creepy at her and is like, hey, if you ever want to know more about things, here's my card. And she's like, ugh, weird. Okay, bye. <laughs> then she asks the alethiometer where she needs to go so she can find out about things. And the alethiometer is like, go to this place and don't lie to the person there. And I was like, okay, I take all my instructions from a piece of metal now. 
<laughs> so <laughs> she goes to visit uh, a woman she discovers is a physicist, Dr. Mary Malone, who is part of a project looking into dark matter that is about to lose all its funding and be disbanded. But she has built this computer that can basically operates the same as the alethiometer and it can communicate with dust. And Lyra is like, cool. I understand entirely how this works. Like, it's just like my alethiometer. I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of things that will just blow your mind. And obviously, Dr. Mary Malone seems like she hasn't slept in five million days and is like, all right, I'm just going to do what this child says because why not? So Lyra makes the computer work and demonstrates to Mary Malone that this is all real. Mary Malone's like, oh my god, can you come back tomorrow so I can show essentially someone else what's going on here because this opens up all kinds of possibilities. Lyra's like, cool, I'll be back. On the other side of things, Will does not like make much progress on the whole finding out his dad thing. Like he knows his dad's disappeared and like he reads the letters and discovers that his dad was maybe looking into portals between worlds worlds as well up in the like arctic area oh what yeah (laughs) it's all connected but yeah like no one knows what's happened to him etc etc then on the other timeline lee scoresby is trying to track down grumman and ends up getting uh into a fight with a member of a church who's trying to take him down he mutters the guy (laughs) And steals his church ring. And Seferina goes through the portal with her witches and ends up in the same world that Will and Lyra have been going into, where, should be mentioned, one of the reasons that the city has been deserted is because there are apparently these things called specters, which are, like, things children cannot see, and they they don't care about children, but they will sort of, like... Someone later on in the book describes them as, like, vampires that, like, leech onto someone and essentially suck something out of them until they're just these kind of nothing people who don't care. As we see later on, when they attack people with demons, they're, like, eating their demons. So it's pretty clear they're, like, feeding on souls, essentially, or or whatever that is, a spirit. And it must also have something to do with dust. But so Seferina and her witches discover all of this by talking to some of the native people there. And they also discovered that this world has angels. (laughs) And then Ruta Scotty, that witch who was in love with Lord Asriel, actually runs into some angels and is like, hey, what's up with you? And they're like, we're answering the call. And they're like, she's like, the call of Lord Asriel? And they're like, maybe. And she's like, cool, can I come with you? And they're like, oh. (laughs) So she ends up going with them to find Lord Asriel and gets there and discovers that he's building this like gigantic tower. She's like, awesome. My bae is doing great. Gonna go see him now. Gonna sneak into his bedroom. Yeah, you're skipping ahead. We don't find that out until like a hundred or so pages later, Casey. <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm spoiling it for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're ruining my summary. But yes, we'll, we'll just say that now since you've already said it. She ends up sneaking into his bedroom. They bang it out. And then she's like, you really going to fight God? And he's like, hell yeah. She's like, cool. I'm going to get more people for your army. So she ends up going back to try and recruit all the witches to join Azriel's army against God. Or as they call him, the authority. Back in uh, Will and Lyra time, 
They end up going back to Oxford to try and find more information on their various quests. Lyra had consulted the Iliomer at some point, and it had been like, look, you can keep talking to Mary Malone, but like, you really shouldn't. You should be helping Will find his father. She kind of ignores that to go back to Mary Malone. When she's there, there are two men there questioning uh, Mary Malone, and they're very interested in Lyra, and they start asking her a whole bunch of questions, and so she's doing her best to lie. But they do that thing where they ask a whole bunch of questions so rapid fire that they trip her up. So they're like, you know, where are you staying? Like, what are your friends? Is Will staying there too? And she's like, yeah. Because <gasps> she realizes she just gave Will away. <laughs> then she has to escape and in the process ends up running into that creepy old man again. But he's in the car this time. And he's like, you need a ride? And she's desperate to get away. So she's like, sure. Hops into the car. Is mostly ignoring him, honestly, just trying to, like, escape. And she has him drop her off close to the portal so she can do that. And she discovers that he has stolen the alethiometer. <laughs> because, of course, he has. Uh-huh. And so she tells Will, and she's like, you gotta help me get it back. Like, it's all my fault because I didn't just like give up everything to help you find your father because a strange device told me so we have to get, get it back let's go steal it Will's like we can't steal it he'll have burglar alarms let's just go and say see if we can get it back because they have the business card to tell where he lives so they go back to visit the sky and they're like hey we want the alethiometer back <laughs> and he's like sucks for you if you want it back you have to get something for me there's this uh weapon, this knife I want, uh, that is in that other world, which I can't go into because the specters would eat me. So you're going to go in, get the knife, bring it back to me, and then I'll give you the alethiometer. And I should mention during this that Will realizes that this man has a demon, a little green snake. So they're like, well, I guess we got to go get this knife then. So they go back to the other world. They go up into this tower that all the children have told them is haunted and bad and the children have been gossiping about essentially what happened to bring the specters here. And throughout the various timelines, we've gotten the sense that this world didn't used to have specters. And then like 300 or so years ago, all of a sudden specters started appearing and the fault of potentially this guild that were doing like weird experiments where they were cutting down matter to get to like the smallest size. And then they kept cutting and that's what brought the specters potentially, but no one fully knows what's going on. But this, this tower was the guild's, and um, therefore, like, all the children were saying it's haunted or whatever, but Lyra had seen some boy up there, so she's like, mm, what's going on? So they go into the tower, and they do stumble across the boy Lyra saw, who she recognizes as the brother of one of the children they've met, who's older, like, you know, of the age where specters might start attacking him. And he's got a knife in hand, and he's just kind of slashing at the air. But they also discover an older man tied up, higher up in the tower and they untie him and they're trying to figure out what's going on when the boy with the knife comes up and they all start fighting will ends up getting a hold of the knife killing the guy <laughs> not with the knife but by pushing him off something <laughs> well no no he to does be fair, he does not full kill him he causes him to become dead again because he pushes them off guy lands on the ground and is now attacked by specters and lyra watches him get eaten so now he's brain dead. So once again, Will is not a full murderer, but uh, <laughs> somehow involved in someone no longer really being alive. So, you know. I just had to kill a lot of people. During all of this, 
two of Will's fingers get cut off. And the old man is like, ah, this is the sign. You are the bearer now. It happened to me too. And he shows he's also missing those two fingers. And he's like, this knife can cut between worlds. And so he teaches Will how to use the knife to cut those little like air boxes between worlds and also how to close them. And says like, every time you use it, you have to close it behind you. And you should never use the knife to harm anyone. But he's like, it will also cut through anything. And Will's like, cool. Well, not really. He doesn't actually want the knife. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I, I, I didn't want to be its bearer. We just got this so we could exchange it for the alethiometer. And the old man's like, uh, no. You can't just give it to him anyways because the knife chooses its bearer. So you're it, bud. And he's like, I'm going to go poison myself now so inspectors don't eat me. Bear that knife well, kid. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, if we can't exchange the knife with the alethiometer, I guess we have to just steal it. So they come up with a little plan to like use the knife to essentially slice directly into the house, steal the alethiometer, and then go back out. So yeah, they start did, doing wait, this. I'm sorry. Did we explain what the knife actually can do? Uh, yeah, I said that bit. Okay. I'm sorry. My... The funny thing about listening to this summary, it's like, oh, yeah, that ha- I just finished this book and I've already forgotten <laughs> half of the things that happened in this book. So I'm sorry. All good. All good. So, yeah, so they're they're enacting this plan. They've, they've cut through into the study. Will's going to try to get the alethiometer. But then the guy, the creep guy is back. And who should be with him but Mrs. Coulter? Who could have seen this coming? Whoa! And it turns out (laughs) that this guy was actually the guy from the first book, the creepy guy who talked to Lyra at one of Mrs. Coulter's parties. Who knew? So he and Mrs. Coulter are are talking about various things. She's trying to find Lyra, so she's trying to find out some shit from him. He tells her, you know, there's something he wants from this other world and kind of explains some of the between-worldness to her and about the specters and everything, etc., etc., And she talks about how she also has made a whole bunch of soldiers out of people that she's severed from their demons. She's like, they're great because they just don't care about anything and they'll fight like crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, cool, you might be able to defend yourself from the sectors then. They probably are not interested in them since they're not interested in children and like neither of them really have dust. Probably the dust they want. So anyhow... They continue having this conversation, and Will and Lyra come up with a plan where Lyra is going to throw rocks through the windows to smash, to distract them. Then Will will dart in and grab the alethiometer, and they manage to pull this off. Get the alethiometer, get out. Even though, oh my goodness, the golden monkey, like, there's a kind of freaking moment where, like, the golden monkey gets, like, a paw in. And then that cat who Will originally followed into this other world comes through for him and attacks, and uh, they're able to escape. So now they've got the alethiometer. They got the knife. They're good. <laughs> and Lyra's like, all right, well, now that I got this back, I'm only going to use this when you tell me to because clearly I can't be trusted because Lithiometer told me just to help you get your father back and I didn't listen and then all this happened. So from now on, I'm under your orders, bud. Tell me what you want, William. I will do anything you wish. He's like, cool. Let's go find my dad. Going back, Lee Scoresby <laughs> finds Grummet. <laughs> Uh, he, like, has to travel quite a ways to do it, but not important. And turns out Grumman's in waiting for him and actually is a shaman and summoned him with magic. And he's like, you are going to take me to Lord Azrael. I know something he doesn't know that he's going to need to know to defeat the authority. Like, there's someone that with, like, a weapon thing that 
he needs in order, like, this person has to help Lord Azrael or he will fail. So you, Lee Scoresby, are going to use your balloon to take me into this other world so I can do this. And Lee Scoresby's like, okay, this is all very weird and a lot for me, but will this help Lyra? Because I love her like a father. Uh. All I want to do is help Lyra. So if I do this, you have to promise me that you'll get the owner of this thing to watch out for Lyra and be her defender. And Gremlin's like, I promise. Let's go. So they rock on out of there. Lyra and Will end up running into uh, Seferina and her witches. They're actually being attacked by the children for essentially murdering one of the children's brothers. Like, I know it's a little more complicated than that, but if we're, if, if the Alethiopter is going to start distilling Will's original first murder to just murder, like, I'm just going to go with it. But Seferina and the other witches drive the children off and unite with uh, Lyra and Will, and they try and heal Will because the stumps of his fingers have just been bleeding this whole time, which, you know, isn't very good for him. They try and heal him. It doesn't really work. They start following the alethiometer towards where it says his dad is. Uh, this is mostly a part where we get, like, conversations about things. Oh, yes, I should mention earlier, <laughs> when Will was trying to learn how to use the subtle knife, he was having a hard time because he had lost two fingers <laughs> and was in a lot of pain. And uh, Pantolaimon ends up gently touching him to reassure him during this time. And Lyra's like, why did why did you do that, bud, during this trek? And Pantolaimon's like, he needed a demon and it felt right, so I did. And she's like, cool, that sounds correct. In the other world, Mary Malone is... Still having a hard time because her project is ending and she has no money to further fund it. And this girl who showed up and, you know, told her all these crazy things has now disappeared. And so she's talking with one of her colleagues when who should roll up but creepy old man. <laughs> who I'm just never going to remember his name because why should I? Okay, his fake name is Sir Charles in this world because he's got two names. Yeah. Who cares? Um, he rolls up and is like, hey, I'll like I'll give you money to like help fund you going forward, but I am going to need you to research how to use this stuff to manipulate people's minds. And also, you should tell me everything about that girl, Lyra, and the boy, Will, she's with. And Mary Malone is like, um, and her colleague is like, will do, bud. And she's like, ugh, sketch, nah. So she ends up going back to her facility that evening. And going in to talk to the computer, and she's able to, like, put herself, now that she's seen Lyra do it and realized more about it, is able to put herself in the right mindset to communicate with it in, like, actual words. And she's like, what are you? What's going on? They're like, we're angels. (laughs) And she's like, okay. And apparently finds that through their conversation figures out they're not just any angels, but they are rebel angels from the first rebellion against the authority slash god and they're like this has been fun but don't waste any more time you need to go find the girl and the boy she's like what what are you talking about and they're like you must play the serpent she's like oh (laughs) and they give her like full instructions of how to get into the other world and they're like don't worry about it you'll be protected the specters won't bother you and destroy all this equipment before you go so she wrecks the equipment, follows the instructions to break into the other world, and sets off to find Will and Lyra. 
on the other end of things, um, this is where the witch Rudy Scott- Scotty comes back to be like, I bang Lord Asriel and kind of inform them about what's going on there. And on Elise Scoresby's side of things, they have traveled into the other world um, and they're traveling for a while, but then they discover they're being pursued by four Zeppelins. And using his shaman magic, Grumman is able to take three of these four Zeppelins down, but they're still being pursued by the last one. So they land and try and escape on foot, but then their pursuers set the forest on fire. And then they keep going, but it comes at a point where it's like, Clearly, they're going to be cut up too. So, Lee Scorsese's like, You promise you're going to make sure Lyra's protected because I love her so much. She is the kid I would have always wanted. Like, I really feel like I'm her dad. And Gremlin's like, I promise we'll protect her. Totally will do if you sacrifice your life. <laughs> he doesn't say that bit, but like, that's me. What's implied here? Yeah. And Lee Scorsese's like, All right, I'm going to stay behind and do a last stand. And Lee Scoresby is able to shoot down a whole bunch of the enemies before he is killed. <laughs> but not before he remembers that he has this token from Seraphina that he can use to call her in For his aid. time of need. And of course, he's like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot that. Let me just call her. Bleh, and he dies. Yeah. He's already taken three bullets at the point he finally remembers this. It is comical how this turns out i will say during the actual scene i did tear up a bit because there's just this part at the end with him and hester his demon oh yeah that's very like yeah anyhow i teared up at that but yes it is annoying (laughs) that he full forgets about it it's funny that if you know anything about my reading style i do not skim i skimmed that scene i could not care less about what was happening on the page and I honestly could not care less that Lee Scoresby died. Yeah, I don't really care about him. It was just the <laughs> scene at the end. It was very, I mean, it's very sweet. I mean, we'll get more into this, but a lot of this book reminds me of the same kind of things that J.J. Abrams does in his films, where he can create like good emotional beats within scenes, but they don't really connect with you in a larger sense. So they don't stick with you after the scene. Anyway. I mean, I think a part of it, too, is that I'm also very emotional about animals, and Harriet does just look like a uh, rabbit. That's true. Or not Harriet, Hester. Wow. <laughs> so, Seferina ends up going off to, you know, help Lee Scoresby, not knowing he's already deaded. Then we have run all this way for nothing. And this other witch, called Lena Felt, ends up going to spy on... Like, I think she's just surveying, but, like, she flies to spy on what ends up being Mrs. Coulter and her soldiers. And turns out Mrs. Coulter is now, like, full commanding the specters. Like, a hashtag girl boss. <laughs> she's like, I just know what they want. And they know that if they follow me, they'll get what they want. And Lord Boreal's like, wow, that's amazing. And she's, you know drinking with him a little seductive action is happening she's like i care about you so much and i really want to please you with my like every action and i just want to know why you're pursuing this boy like why does he matter so much to you just tell me tell me work in her magic questionable if it's it's magic or not (laughs) as referred to earlier (laughs) but i really feel like because she has this power over the specters that's what kind of proves it's magic but we can get into that later. We don't talk about it. You do kind of see her talking 
Lord Boreal into telling her about the subtle knife. Then she poisons him, reveals that she knew the witch was there the entire f***ing time, and has set a specter on her demon, and this is torture of such magnitude that the witch ends up telling her where Will and Lyra are, and she tells her that the prophecy is that Lyra is Eve reborn. And Mrs. Coulter's like, ah, I get it now. I have to destroy her to make sure she never falls again. <laughs> well, let's go, Spectre friends. And she sets off to uh, attack and steal Lyra. And then... Oh, and the, and the witch dies. Oh, yeah, the witch... The, well, doesn't die. Gets soul-eaten. Yeah. Full-eaten. Nobody cares. It's just some, some witch that appeared randomly and she dies. It is kind of a horrifying description of what she feels right before she, she dies from getting yeah. eaten. Blah, blah. She felt a nausea of the soul, a hideous and sickening despair, a melancholy weariness so profound that she was going to die of it. Her last conscious thought was disgust at life. Her senses had lied to her. The world was not made of energy and delight, but of foulness, betrayal, and lassitude. Living was hateful, and death was no better. And from end to end of the universe, this was the first and last and only truth. Thus she stood, bow in hand, indifferent, dead to life. Anywho... Will feels this strange compulsion to move, and so he starts moving and climbing away from where they're all camped out for the evening. Ends up running into this man, and they get into a small tussle before the man is like, calm down, give me your hand, I'm gonna heal you. So he does something with Will's hand, and he's like, you got the knife, cool, excellent, and uh, you have to take that to Lord Asriel. It's like, super important in this war. Because that is the only thing that can kill the authority. And was like, what the f***? <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm looking to do here. But they end up getting one brief little look at each other. And in that moment, realize they are father and son. <laughs> because this is Grumman, <laughs> uh, whose uh, actual name is John Perry. And uh, this is his son. Will, woo! So they get literally two seconds. Well, no, literally one of like seeing each other, and then <laughs> Grumman slash John Perry gets murdered by that witch who loved him so much. Uh, Will's like, "Why'd you kill him? Why did you fucking kill him?" And she's like, "Because I loved him, and he scorned me. I'm a witch. I don't forgive." <sighs> and then she ends up killing herself. <sighs> so Will's like, "Okay." Dad, I guess since it was your last witch, I will take this knife to Lord Azrael. So he goes back down to find that all of the witches that were still there with Lyra were attacked by specters, and Lyra is missing, and there are a whole bunch of angels there. And they're like, you're the one with the knife? We're here to bring you to Azrael. And he's like, Lyra's not here, so I guess. <laughs> and that's the end of the book. So, why don't you start? Because I, I'm curious to know if the things that irritated you about this book were the same things that irritated me. So, I would love to hear mm. what your major gripes were. Where to even begin? I hate just how action-oriented this book is. Like we talked last time. Pullman's not 
his action writing isn't the best. I'd say it's better in this book overall. Like you, you can mm-hmm. mostly understand what's happening on the page, but it's God action in books, unless it's really well done. It's just some of the dullest <laughs> possible. That's not the strength of books is, is displaying action. It's more meditative and, but constantly this book interrupts any moment where characters can just sit and think about things and talk about things. It's like, it's so afraid of nothing, quote unquote, nothing happening on the page that it has to force in some action beats to spice things up. And it's, it's so infuriating because when there are chances to for Will and Lyra to talk about Will's dad, talk about certain mysteries and like what's going on in the world and why they in particular met up and all these different things that could be interesting. Something has to interrupt it. Like the kids come running in saying, we're going to murder you. Or there's a copper who comes in and says, we're going to arrest you. Or Lyra gets hit by a car. Stupid (laughs) Just, and also like the very beginning of the book, there's, I'm curious if it's the same kind of tropes that infuriated you, but there's the whole trope of the government agents going after Will and his family and these kind of like shady, mysterious men raiding his home and pursuing him. And it's like this government conspiracy because the police are in on it and lord boreal is in on it too and everyone's out to get them and it's just like it's so dull and uninteresting and it's relying and this is when i said that i found the writing of this book cowardly it's because it relies on action to spark interest rather than the things that are actually interesting in the book There's the whole question of how the specters came to be. There are the angels, these mysterious figures. There's the conflation of dark matter and dark energy with dust and how it's all tied together. And these this mystery of these skulls that date back to like 30,000 years ago. All these kind of mystery boxes that are could be interesting. And there's also like non-mystery box stuff. There's a conversation at the end where Will's dad, Grumman slash John Perry, says this monologue where he's like, there's been a war like this before and there's going to be another one now. We have to make sure the right side wins this time. And I wrote in my notes, how do we know which side is the right side? We're just being told that Asriel's on the right side. We're being told that one side breeds ignorance and the other side encourages growth and wisdom. But wouldn't it have been interesting to have a conversation about how to determine which side is the right side? Because at this point, we're seeing players on both sides who are pretty god (laughs) despicable. Asriel's a <laughs> despicable human being. Mrs. Coulter's a despicable human being. R- Rita Scotta, whatever her name is, is 
the most obnoxious, she is obnoxious. character in this book. And she's clearly on Asriel's side. Because he's hot. Because he's so hot. And she has, like, the lines in this book that are perhaps the most anti-religious. Basically, there's one monologue where she's saying, like, we need to destroy the authority because we've seen the destructive acts of the authority's agents. And thus, the authority must be bad. That kind of logic might fly with teenagers who don't know anything about nuance. But it's just stupid now as adults to to be like, yes, because the people who follow this faith are bad or this belief system are bad. That inherently means that belief system is bad. I could do the same thing. I could say, hey, Philip Pullman, he's an atheist. This book is terrible. Ergo, all atheists are terrible writers and should be destroyed. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. I'm ranting. <laughs> this book is so poorly conceived in almost every single way possible. It feels like the definition of spinning wheels. It feels like... For whatever reason, Pullman is afraid to dig into the philosophy of the characters, so he avoids it by any means necessary. The mystery boxes completely backfire. The scene that killed me in this book is when we see Mrs. Coulter for the first time, and she's talking to Lord Boreal, and they are having this discussion at this point, Will and Lyra are eavesdropping. So this is the kind of conversation. This is the trope of like the good guys listening in on the bad guys, and they're going to learn the bad guy's plan. That's the trope, right? But the information that's revealed in this scene is all information that we already know in this book, and there's nothing new added. And it's like this weird quality. For example, we learn... At the beginning of the book, Azrael has this plan to wage war against the Authority. We learn this from his manservant. And then we flash forward to the scene between the two main villains of the story. And by the way, Lord Boreal is not named until this point. And it's like 200 pages into the book. So for 200 pages, we just don't even have a name for our primary antagonist in this book. We have Sir Charles, but this is when he's revealed. Right. If we were very careful readers, we might, might remember the man with the green snake demon that Lyra met. And Lyra multiple times is like, I maybe kind of remember him. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. But it's but who cares? It's It's a twist for the sake of a twist, but it doesn't actually reveal anything new. And that's like this conversation because then Coulter and this guy are talking and... Mrs. Coulter reveals Asriel wants to wage war against the authority. In the book, they quickly skirt past that because we already know that information. So there's no reason for Mrs. Coulter to explain it all over again. But we lose a chance for them to actually grapple with what that means. The book, it never interrogates its stakes, it just presents them but you never learn more about those stakes or why they're interesting or the potential consequences. Like, what, what happens if they defeat the authority? What happens if the authority wins again? What will take place? What will happen to everybody? What will happen to dust? What will happen to demons? What 
How? Why? I have so many questions! We don't get that conversation because I guess according to Pullman, it's not exciting enough. The kid readers will be bored by all this deep philosophical discussion. God, like, it's so weird that in the first book, it feels like Pullman has such an intense respect for children. And then this this book feels like a huge step back because it just feels like he thinks the reader is stupid. And he can't, it's like, we're not going to discuss those big heady things because you're not going to understand. We're just going to keep it light and action oriented. Just eat your popcorn, you stupid reader. Eat it. Stuff your stupid face and follow the action. This book is trash. <laughs> Philip Pullman. <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as to say it's trash, <laughs> but I, so I agree with your statement about the action, not Phil's strong suit. He should maybe not. <laughs> there, and I kind of disagree with you a little bit in that, like, I have read books with absolutely fantastic action. There are some people who can just write action so well in the written format that you're like, wow. Big wow. I will shout out Brandon Sanderson as possibly the best action writer I've ever read. He does these spectacular action scenes, and every time I'm, like, on the edge of my seat, I'm not really an action person in either the visual or the written format, but, like, he really does it for me. But, like, not Phil Strong suit, and a lot of this book is very go, go, go. I think that kind of one way to put a lot of what you said is this book has a really strong second book syndrome. It's not answering any questions. It's not really delving into them. It's just kind of adding on like the first book introduced everything but this book kind of weirdly has to reintroduce a lot and then has to like just add more questions on top of the ones we already had mm -hmm. instead of resolving any of them to be fair at the end of the book we do get the reveal of what the po prophecy about lyra is um which was by the way the other thing i remembered from this book was that lyra's eve so we did get that answer in this book and I do think the one thing that was nicely structured about this book is that we get three scenes with Mrs. Coulter, one in the beginning, one in the middle, one in the end, where like people are spying on her and overhearing her conversations, and they all lead to her realization that Lyra is Eve, so we kind of get to see her own little mini-arc within the book. Like, I get your point about that conversation with Lord Boreal in the middle, like, that it's not revealing anything new that we don't know or that Lyra and Will don't know. But I do think it works to have her little mini arc happening. And I think that if actually Pullman had done a better job of like, I mean, she is the antagonist, really. Mm -hmm. Lord Boreal's just playing a little minor part. But I think throughout the entire series, as much as like the church is really the main antagonist, Mrs. Coulter is who represents that for us and who Lyra sees as her main antagonist. And therefore, it's really a story about a mother against daughter in this weird way. Mm hmm. And so I think that if he'd actually leaned into that more, it could have made this all stronger. But putting that aside, what really irritated me, two main things. One is coincidences. Mm. And two, treatment slash depiction of women. Yes. So I'm just going to go into both of us. Um, but starting with the coincidences, I was thinking back to our discussion about Howl's Moving Castle, which I consider a perfectly constructed book. One of the things I like about it is that there are, like, everything ties in. Nothing is uh, wasted or excess. But I like it specifically because Hell's Moving Castle is written as a kind of fairy tale. And that really works in a fairy tale format. 
you have very short stories where like nothing can be wasted. Everything ends up coming back. And I think that's really fun. This is not a fairy tale, but it's kind of operating the same way. And like, of course, Gremlin is Will's dad. Of course, like they bring the witch and then she would end up in this world and blah, blah, blah. There's just so many like little things that it's like, oh, what a coincidence. And I get that this is destiny or fate operating in this book. Like I, I understand because we, there's a lot of talk about that in the first book, you know, that Lyra is fated to be put in this position to be Eve. She can't know what's happening, but clearly fate or destiny is operating and she's the one designed to destroy that. Like that's her mission as far as the witches understand it. And so I think we're supposed to understand that fate or destiny or whatever is the guiding force here. That's why there are all these like, of course, Will would get subtle knife and be the exact person his father is looking for. Well, he's looking for his father and blah, blah, blah. And they would reunite for like two seconds right before he dies. I get that we're supposed to understand that. But what was nice about the first book is they did have some of those philosophical discussions about destiny that were helpful. This book, it's not really discussed. I think Seferina mentions it once that mm. Lyra is designed to destroy it. But it's not, it's not brought up. And all the coincidences just feel really like kind of irritating like it doesn't feel like a cool like for one thing you know before going into that scene that grumman is will's father but it doesn't feel like a fun twist when you learn that like you said it feels just kind of like lazy like oh of course he has to be because like god apparently there are only so many people in this world (laughs) (laughs) that's what it actually does feel like it feels like even though we're in three different worlds everything's very small Mm-hmm. there's just yeah of course the guy that would happen to see lyra in the museum is lord boreal like of course it can't just be some random guy it has to be like in this one museum mm-hmm. in the whole of this whole other world that's yeah. where this guy is that is just like so frustrating to me because there's nothing t- maybe if they leaned into the whole destiny thing more and you had characters commenting on it or thinking about it like, maybe then I would feel it was justified, but it's not, like, mentioned, and I just can't buy into it. So that was my first thing that, like, really drove me absolutely nuts about this book. The second thing, depiction of women. Like, I think we were very positive in the first book about Lyra and Mrs. Coulter and about them getting to be, like, complicated women doing their own thing, striding out into the world, et cetera, et cetera. And I was so, and and all the witches and stuff, I was so upset by so many women in this book, with the exception, I think, of Mrs. Coulter, who continues to, like, hashtag girl boss it up. But, like, starting with, like, obviously, okay, we'll just start with Lyra, because she's the main character. Lyra, who we get to see to be so competent and so wild and alive and this great liar and this, have this very crafty mind in the first book. And really, she accomplishes so much. Like, in that first book, she's so cool. She In this book, she does, like, anything she does, she does because the alethiometer tells her what to do. And then she decides that, actually, like, she she can't do anything on her own, and she's going to wait for Will to tell her what to do. And that's so frustrating to me. Like, she really gets nerfed in this book, it feels like. It feels like Philip Holman was like, Mm, actually what Lyra needs really is a piece of metal and then a man to tell her what to do because <laughs> and like at one point Pan is like you should just ask the alethiometer this question I forget what the question is but like something that like she really should have known like I think that literally Philip Pullman was like she is overpowered because she can ask the alethiometer anything and I can't have her know things yes 
And it feels so contrived. And Panda's like, you should ask. And she's like, I'm not going to. Maybe I once would have, but I'm changing. And it's like, he's acting, like, Philman is trying to convince us this is Lyra maturing. And I'm like, this is not maturity. This is literally just something so that you can have the plot you want. So, like, that's really frustrating. And then on the witch's side of things, you have, like, Rudy or whatever, Ruda, Scotty, whatever her name is, <laughs> who's, like, all up on Lord Asriel's <laughs> literally and metaphorically, which is just, like, so... She, at one point, she literally says, like, even though he's so much younger than us, he feels so much older. Like, he's so powerful. It's so just disgusting, the way she talks about him. And then there's, of course, the witch who's in love with Grumman, who gets turned down and is like, uh, actually, I'm going to have to murder him now because, you know, once scorned or whatever. And she has, Will's like, why did you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, you wouldn't understand. You're a kid. And I'm like, no, 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 honey. I'm sorry. There's no way you can present this as like a maturity. Like Philip Pullman doesn't seem to understand that this woman is like unhinged. Yeah. Like no one is looking at her critically and being like, hmm, this guy said he didn't want to sleep with you and you want to kill him? That's kind of a problem. Like there's something deeply wrong with you. Everyone is acting like this is reasonable. What the hell? What the (laughs) hell? Like acting like women have this sort of like completely irrational like... They're so in love with the man, they'll do anything to have him, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oy vey, seriously? And then, of course, there's Will's mother, who I I hesitate to lump in, but, like, it goes with the whole trend of this thing where, like, yeah, Will has to look after her because she's not as mentally sound, so he's been looking after her his whole life. There are so few female characters in this book who stand on their own and can do things without having a man tell them what to do, or their actions being driven by a man. I have to take back every nice thing I said about (laughs) Phil Poland's depiction of female characters in comparison to C.S. Lewis. And even Mary Malone, who is this cool, awesome scientist lady. Like, she decided to stop being a nun (laughs) and got out and became a physicist. Like, how cool is that? And then, in the end, ends up, like, taking orders from a bunch of uh, angels in a box, which, to be fair, they are not gendered. But... You know, they're like, you got to go do this. And she's like, okay, I guess I better go do this. I just feel like it is a recurring theme in the book in a way I'm uncomfortable with. One of these situations, other than the one about the, which just so hot on Grumman, she's got to murder him. Yeah. But like, if if I had maybe just one of the other situations, I could maybe like be like, okay, this is just one character going through this. But the fact that it's so systematic, kind of like across the board. I mean, even Seferina is doing okay. Seferina is mostly fine. She does head off at the end because Lee Scoresby needs her. But that's that's a little different. She did offer her aid. So yeah, we'll, we'll give Seferina a pass. But like really so many of the women in this book are so, I don't know. I think it's very sexist. <laughs> I was, especially the witches, I was just so extremely disappointed with their depiction in this book. because. You know, it feels like uh, I got major George Lucas vibes from this book in the sense that Pullman has created a a world that's really cool and interesting, except he doesn't know why it's cool and interesting. And the witches are exhibit A of that, because in the first book, they're this 
in, in a lot of ways, they reminded me of the elves from Lord of the Rings. They're these kind of timeless, everlasting beings that are beyond the basic human wants and needs and frivolities. And the, the way they see the world and see each other and see other people is so fascinating because there there is a whole thing in the first book about how they are capable of love. And they go through this process of, of loving these people who, in contrast to them, live a blip. But they still fall in love with them. And they, and they describe how even though they know all these things, they know that these people are going to grow old and die long before they, they themselves will die. They still love them and they still grieve the fact they, they are hurt deeply by the heartbreak that they go through. And it's like this fascinating thing of how these seemingly timeless beings are still subject to the same kind of feelings and the same kind of intensity of feeling. And then you get to this book, and basically it's just that the witches are horny as f And if you scorn them, it's like that that's the worst thing you can do because hell hath no fury like a woman scorns. Tee hee hee hee. It's so... Oh, yeah. If you don't sleep with them, even if you don't want to, like, you're going to get murdered, so... Right. And it's like, I don't know what what he's trying to do with that. There there are so many elements in this book where I have no idea what Pullman's trying to do, but clearly it doesn't come through. And I think that there are... I'm glad you brought up the fact that there's so many instances of the female characters obeying others. And I... I this is the most generous reading I can give that because there's this line at the end that Grumman in his final monologue to Will says, and, and I'll just read it here. Um, he's talking about the war that's coming and how Will has to side with the right side. And he says, there are two great powers, the man said, and they've been fighting since time began. Every advance in human life, every scrap of knowledge and wisdom and decency we have has been torn by one side from the teeth of the other. Every little increase in, in human freedom has been fought over ferociously between those who want us to know more and be wiser and stronger and those who want us to obey and be humble and submit. And I feel like what Pullman was trying to go for, he's trying to point out some kind of hypocrisy in the way characters have been acting in this book and that's been part of the problem of everything faltering in this book that people are obeying and submitting to others it's like oh but you think the the right side is good well they're just as bad because they're they're also obeying and they're also trying to force people to submit blah 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 if that's the case though it's not evident here in this book. There's nobody saying, wait a minute, why should I obey you? There's Lyra never says, why should I be obeying this alethiometer? And I think that's like what you said, where this book is so reliant on mystery boxes. And you know what the alethiometer is very good at doing? Solving mysteries. So if you're going to have a book primarily built around mystery boxes... You need to neuter 
the one tool that the characters could use to solve everything in a second. And it's so frustrating because what ends up happening is that he neuters Lyra, who was easily the most interesting character in the first book, is now somehow the least interesting character in this book. And it's just remarkable how Pullman doesn't see what was so amazing about the first book and gives us this sh- Look, Will is a fine enough character, but he's no Lyra. And so the fact that he's the one person really driving this plot is just... F- like, what a wasted well, opportunity. And what drove me crazy, too, is at numerous points, his, like, eyes or expression or whatever is described to be, like, Azriel's to have a sort of similar energy. And I was like, it is so unfair that Will is getting that description when Lyra, Azriel's actual daughter, is right there. Right there. <laughs> Catch more of our ranting and raving next week on Reread. See you then. Just to let you know that I hate your guts and I think you suck. I hate the